Well, how's the chain church this morning? It's really uh, exciting to be here. I have the privilege of teaching pastors, like Josiah said, all over Broward County, and uh, largely that began with the pastors at Calvary. And Josiah was part of that ministry for, for a number of years, and it's just wonderful uh, to see his enthusiasm, his excitement again. Uh, Josiah was always excited about the Word of God, and I know he's bringing that heart and that spirit to you. You are well pastored, I can tell you. I'm sure you know that already, but it's wonderful. I was part of a church plant many years ago, and that's exciting. Um, it seems like the labor of setting up and tearing down uh, became a joy, and that's because the Lord is here, and you're serving Him, and you're creating a community that will welcome his people, and who knows what God is going to do with you in the years to come. God bless you, Josiah, and look at the fruit already that God has given. I can tell the Exchange Church that God loves you very much, and I know that because he's given you a pastor with a pastor's heart. So it's my uh, honor, Josiah asked me to preach for him this week, and so uh, we talked a little bit about what I should talk about, but I want to talk to you about a passage that has meant a lot to me over many years. And uh, every now and then I, I ask to preach it because I need to hear it myself. Uh, it's my favorite character, I think, in all the Bible. And it's Mary of Bethany. This young lady, um, she's young in the passage here, I guess she's 2,000 years old by now. <laughs> that, uh, that sounds different, doesn't it? But, and it's the eternal, eternal life, but nonetheless. Um, I was thinking once about when I get to heaven by God's grace, and after I meet Jesus, who would I want to speak to first? Because all my heroes, I was led to faith early by a Christian mother, and so I grew up with a Bible. So you think, well... You want to meet David, don't you, the hero of Goliath? And you want to meet Moses, my goodness, the colossal giant that strides over the Testaments, both of them. Um, what about Abraham, the father of our faith? Or Adam, the father of all of us? There's so many characters. Joshua, the great conqueror of Jericho. And you think of the apostles Peter and James and John and all of these, and after I was done thinking about that for a while, I realized the one person I want to meet after the Savior is Mary of Bethany. And I think you'll understand why when we're done. I want to meet this, this woman who saw Jesus in a way that nobody else saw him. She's the only one, as far as we know, that understood that he must suffer and die and be resurrected. Even though Jesus taught that clearly, nobody could hear it. They couldn't accept it. They, it didn't register, really, um, with, with them. But Mary understood. What was it about Mary that enabled her to see what no one else could see? And I think we'll see that this morning, too. So I'm hoping I can introduce her to you. Um, as I said, I'm quite fond of this lady. And so let's begin by reading her story. Uh, let's begin with reading John chapter 12, 
And I'm going to read it for you, make a few comments, then we will pray, and then we will look at the text. Josiah, is the water around here somewhere? Oh, there, thank you. Yeah, I'm going to need this, I think. John chapter 12. Now six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Bethany is just on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, and it is about a 15-minute walk from Jerusalem. It's very close. And Jesus has come there. This is the last feast. He came to Jerusalem, remember, three times uh, a year, according to the law. And this is now he has come to the Passover, where he will be crucified. And he will teach in the temple every day, but in the nighttime, he and the disciples will go back to Bethany, just across Olives, where they're staying at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the little family that loved him. And so he stayed there customarily. And earlier that year, he had raised Lazarus from the dead in a very famous story I think you all know. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, which is all consistent with her character. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at table with him. That would be interesting, that discussion, wouldn't it? What was it like, Lazarus, during those four days? And all the city was there, because Lazarus was quite, quite a, uh, a draw. People wanted to see the man that had come back from the dead. And all of them came to these suppers. They were open to people. They could watch and hear the conversation. Then Mary came in during the supper, took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. And the text is emphasizing its value. It was a pound. That's an extravagant amount. Very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus, Mark tells us in the parallel passage that she anointed his head as well. And then she wiped his feet with her hair. She laid, let down her hair, which was only done in the most intimate of contexts, but this is public. And she uses it to dry the feet of Jesus. So she completely disregards any thought of her physical beauty. She only wants to serve the Savior, and that is her spiritual beauty. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. It's very fragrant, so everybody was drawn into the um, center section where the supper was because of the fragrance. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii, 300 pieces of silver, and given to the poor? So he begins to charge at her. Judas, you see, can put a price on everything. He knows exactly how expensive this is. 300 pieces of silver is a full year's wage in a very marginal economy. It's an enormous price, but I want you to see that that is Mary's price for Jesus. Judas also has a price for Jesus, doesn't he? And this will be the week when he will sell him for a tithe, 
30 pieces, not 300. Jesus, is Jesus worth 300 pieces of silver? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was the th a thief and he had the money box. He was the treasurer of the disciples. That means he had the most trusted place. He was the least, last to be, ex be suspected of anything. And he used to pilfer, he used to take what was in it. But Jesus said, now notice this, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. Isn't that an interesting comment? What does that mean? For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came. They came to see Lazarus, they came to see Jesus, who was well known by this point. Not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. And John is telling us what, what was to happen. Uh, once Jesus was put to, dead, put to death, the temple police went around to assassinate prominent Christians. The disciples locked themselves, remember, away in fear for the Jews. Uh, the thought was that they could wipe out this Christian Christianity before it even begins. And one of them they had to target, they had to take out, was Lazarus. So Mary and Martha would soon after this see their brother slaughtered. And that, is what, that, was, the, that was to be the future of this sweet family. Well, this is the text. Let's ask that the Lord would illuminate to our hearts. And then we will look at it specifically. Gracious Father, we thank you for this precious story about the last week of the life of our Lord, the day before his triumphal entry, when he enters into the city in all the glory and the humility of the King Messiah. We thank you for this wonderful, beautiful account of the love of Mary of Bethany. And we would ask that your spirit, who was there and who is now here, would be in us to teach us to see the Lord as she saw him. We could see how precious he is, that he is truly worth everything we have and everything we are. Be with us for Jesus' sake. Amen. The setting is the evening before the triumphal entry. The next morning, Jesus will go over that hill and send to get the donkey, and they will set palm branches in his way, as you know. The very famous account in chapter 12 of the triumphal entry. Now John, in arranging his gospel, has made the triumphal entry the centerpiece of his gospel. It is the claim that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord Messiah. And framing that central story in the gospel are two foot-washing narratives. In chapter 12, before the, the triumphal entry, Mary will wash the feet of Jesus in the passage we have just read. And then in chapter 13, Jesus himself will wash the feet of the disciples. And they're put there to show you the context of the exaltation of Christ 
because his triumphal entry, he speaks of being lifted up to be made king in Israel, but the lifting up, ironically, is he must be lifted up on the cross, as you know, by which he will receive his kingdom. So it is triumph, but it is also humility, abject humility. Both, both of these foot-washing scenes teach a remarkable insight about the gospel. I'm going to talk about that as we go along, but for this for a moment now, keep this in mind. At the Last Supper, as you know, Jesus says, will say, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And as a foot washing, when Mary washes his feet, Jesus will say that wherever in the world this gospel is preached, this gospel will be preached in remembrance of her, in remembrance of Mary. And that promise that Jesus has said, we are fulfilling today, aren't we? 8,000 miles away from Israel and 2,000 years uh, removed, we too are fulfilling the promise that he made that she would be, we, would, we would preach this gospel in remembrance of this noble woman. The um, Lord had arrived in Bethany. As I said, he stayed that last week with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that little family, two sisters and a brother. We don't know much about their family. They seem to be a family of some means. It was a large house, large enough to accommodate Jesus and all of his 12 disciples. And he would stay there regularly with them. He would stay there every night before he suffered. And Martha, interestingly, we're told, owns the house. It's very unusual that a woman would be entitled to property. Uh, probably her parents, um, the parents of these three children had died. This may have been their settlement. Mary was the one who was, you can see she has an administrative gift. And so she's given the custody of the house, probably not Lazarus, perhaps he was sickly. But in any case, that's the one you would normally have thought would have been the householder, but it is actually Martha. And Mary is the younger sister, and she lives with them. This little family loved the Lord and welcomed him whenever he would come, and he would come three times at least a year. Now, Mary uh, does not have uh, the house, but probably she has an inheritance that is this alabaster uh, vial of oil. That's, prob that's very likely her inheritance. It's likely her dowry. They didn't have commercial ways of transferring money and inheritances back then. They had property. They had tangible property. And she has this alabaster uh, vase filled with a pound of spikenard, very expensive. The alabaster vase itself was very expensive. Alabaster comes from Egypt. It's a metamorphic form of limestone that has a, a color that's like human flesh. The Egyptians would make statues out of alabaster. Uh, very, very precious, very hard to uh, form, and they had formed this vase. A perfume vase is always has a narrow opening because it's expensive, and if it falls over, you don't want to spill it, so only very little can come out at a time. 
Uh, and so it would have been very hard to carve that and prepare it. It was very expensive. The spike nard comes actually from India. Uh, this particular kind of root is found in the Himalayan he hills of India, so it was quite an importation, which they was rare in those days, but nonetheless they had it. In our money, this vase that she has is worth approximately $60,000, the vase and the oil. It was an entire year's wage, but in a marginal economy, that would be an enormous sum far greater than what 60000 would represent to us. There's no way to calculate it. That was probably her dowry. And that's all she has, very likely. Jesus knew this family well and loved them. We know of three visits that he made. He probably made many more, three a year, as we have suggested. But three of the visits of Jesus to this family are recorded in the Gospels. Uh, on one visit, Martha was preparing a supper for him to honor the Savior, and you remember that Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. Interestingly, in each of these three stories, Mary is always at the feet of the Savior. Martha was busy in her hospitality, and you remember that Martha was offended because Mary would sit at the feet of Jesus to be taught. And so Martha, her sister, spoke up and complained to the Lord that Mary was not helping with the preparations. Now, remember, Mary is doing that out of a heart of love for the Savior, uh, her preparations, and that's honored, but Jesus affirmed Mary when she was being criticized and said, Mary has chosen the better part, and that will never be taken away from her. He's affirming that it's better to sit at his feet than to do the necessary preparations of life. And so she um, was criticized, her conduct, because she was so singularly devoted to Jesus, and Jesus intervened to affirm her. Earlier in this same year, Jesus had been on his way to Jerusalem when word came to him across the Jordan in Perea that Lazarus was sick unto death. And you remember the story, Jesus delayed coming, and then Lazarus died. And when he came at last to Bethany, Martha went out to Jesus again in her grief to lodge a complaint. They had sent word to come. It was urgent. He was at the point of death. And she complained that if Jesus had only come a little earlier, her brother wouldn't have died. Now, Jesus had delayed intentionally. Why? It was for the sake of the disciples, and I think it was for the sake of Martha. It's for our sake. You see, Martha thought he needs to come before Lazarus dies so that he can heal him which means she's thinking that Jesus is what? He's like a physician. He's an amazing physician, but if Lazarus dies, what good can a physician do? Her view of Jesus is not yet mature. She doesn't know who he is by that question. So she went out to him and she complained, and then when Mary hears, um, Martha tells her that the teacher has arrived, the rabbi has arrived, but not the Messiah. 
When Mary hears that, she goes out, she runs to Jesus and falls at his feet in a posture of humility and love. And Jesus says to them, where did you lay him, you remember? And then Jesus went to the tomb and Lazarus was raised from the dead. All of that was to show that Jesus is more than a physician. He is not hindered and rendered disabled. His service is unneeded by death itself. Who can raise someone from the dead? That's more than the work of a physician because Jesus is more than a physician. He is actually the God of life and death. Now the hour, however, now he's there for the third time. We saw Mary at the feet of Jesus listening to what he said. We saw her at the feet of Jesus imploring Jesus on behalf of her brother. And now we see her uh, in the last scene. Jesus has come to Jerusalem uh, for it, the hour of his death has come and he is there for the Passover feast. Now during supper, there will be a trial to expose the heart of the disciples. Just like at the Passover, at the Last Supper, there will be a trial. Jesus will tell them, he knows who the traitor is, but he will tell them all, one of you will betray me. And he does that very deliberately because that plunges all of them into the introspection that we must all have when we come to that sacred table. Paul tells us we must examine ourselves. Jesus had all of the disciples examine themselves before they partook of that table. And that was to see, to show them who they were, and all of them said, Lord, is it I? And you can see there is a test of the disciples at the Last Supper, there is a test of the disciples here. Mary, during supper, took her alabaster jar of ointment and came in and knelt at Jesus' feet. For the third time, and the only times that we know of, she is at the feet of Jesus. Now, because the flesk, she intends to anoint his feet. Why is she doing this? Because the flask is designed to pour out sparingly. It's in the shape of a man, actually, with the neck being very small so that it can only uh, pour out sparingly. Because she wants to do this, gesture, this extravagant gesture of love, she takes this precious alabaster flask and breaks the neck so that she can pour out the anointing oil. And that's going to be a shock to everybody, that she would break so precious a vessel, and then that she would just pour out this extravagant offering uh, generously on Jesus' feet. This spikenard was so valuable largely because of its power, its potency. It went immediately throughout the whole house and everybody came into the central place where they were all uh, seated for supper. It drew the whole house, all of the people from the village could come in, everybody, that, as many as could crowd in could see what was going on. And she knelt at his feet, anointed them with the oil, and then she let down her hair to dry his feet. Uh, in the glory of a young woman, that's her hair. And she completely uh, uses it for this service of washing the, and anointing the feet of the Savior. So, what happens then? She had no thought, as I said, for her physical beauty. All she could think of was the Lord she loved. 
I think she could hardly have imagined what was to follow. Her private act of devotion quickly became a public scandal. The disciples were furious at her and began to scold her and shout at her. Imagine the scene. She's at the feet of Jesus and the disciples are charging her with folly. Judas is the first to condemn her. Why this waste? That's the word. For Judas, this is only a waste. Um, what would we have thought if we had been there to know the price of this $60,000? Why this waste? He said this could have been sold for 300 pieces of silver and given to the poor. Well, yes, that's very true, isn't it? Then all the rest of the disciples joined in to shout their anger. Mark is the one with the most vivid language. He says they were shouting at her, and he uses a verb that's used of horses snorting on their way into war. They're furious and angry at her. Imagine this poor woman, this little girl at the feet of Jesus. They shouted at her and how foolish she had been. Imagine her dismay. And Jesus allows this to continue. Peter, John, James, Nathaniel, Andrew, all condemning her. How would you feel if the disciples of the Lord were shouting out their disapproval of what you had done in a public setting after what you had done? She probably held her head down, I would imagine, wondering and fearing, will Jesus also condemn me? And then at last, Jesus spoke and said to his disciples, after he allowed them to reveal their heart to themselves too, Jesus, looking at Mary, said to them, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. He affirms her. Imagine what that meant. What would that have sounded like? We have only a summary, but imagine what that would have sounded like. Peter, the one who will be the chief apostle, leave her alone. James and John, the sons of thunder, don't say another word. Nathaniel, Andrew, be quiet. Thaddeus, the church will hardly remember anything about you at all. Simon of Cana, the only thing the church will remember about you is the city from which you came. But I tell you, she has done all that she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for my burial. How odd is that? What does that mean? In truth, wherever in all the earth the gospel is preached, what Mary has done will be told in remembrance of her. Now, what did Jesus mean? She has anointed me beforehand for my burial. That makes no sense at all. No one is anointed for burial before death, are they? But Mary knew. Somehow she understood. As far as we know, no one but her understood. Mary knew that Jesus would have to die, and she had listened to Jesus, and she knew, because he taught it often, that he would rise again on the third day. She knew that she would have no opportunity to express her love for Jesus by anointing him 
after his death. And so what she did to show her love is that she had decided to anoint him for his burial, for the death he would give for her before he died. What a heart is that? What a, what a mind to apprehend what Jesus... The only way that I think Mary understood it is because it wasn't just the teaching, it was the heart that was revealed. She saw the heart of Jesus, and so she really did believe what he said on many occasions to all of them elsewhere, that he must die and on the third day be raised again, and nobody could understand that except for Mary. Why is her anointing so wonderful that Jesus connected the gospel itself? You see, Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached in all the world, this will be told in remembrance of her. What was it that she did that shows the gospel in such a dramatic and wonderful way? And I think the connection between the two is to look at what happens a few days later when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples at the Last Supper. John will give you the account of that in chapter 13, but let me summarize it for you. While supper was, while that Last Supper was underway, we are told what Jesus did. Jesus rose from supper. It was not the time for the host to leave. What is he doing? Every eye went to him. All the disciples are there. He rose from supper. He laid aside his clothes. And everybody is wondering, what is he doing? What, 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 what is, why is he undressing himself? Then he takes a loincloth cloth and girds himself with a towel. And then he pours water into a basin and goes to kneel at the feet of the disciples one by one and wash their feet and dry them with the towel with which he is girded. When he finishes that work, and they're all stunned and shocked, they don't understand why is this rabbi, who we think is the Messiah, why is he doing such a thing like a bondservant would do? He takes his place again and he said, do you know what I've done to you, for, for you? You don't understand now, you will understand hereafter. John has understood and he has explained it because he describes that scene with seven, seven verbs. And that's meaningful for John. He says Jesus rose up and laid aside and took a towel and girded himself with it, poured water into a basin began to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel with which he is girded. And if you can see in that, that is the entire story of the gospel. Paul expounds on it in Philippians 2 when he said this is the mind that was in Christ, wasn't it? He rose from his heavenly throne when he saw our need. He laid aside every divine privilege that he had, and emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a man, and not just a man, but a bondservant. 
and girded himself to the work of the service, and that work was to pour out his very blood for us, that he might wash us from our sins and one day dry away all our tears. In that one act, he is displaying in small the entire cosmic gospel, the purpose of God. Though he was rich, he saw our poverty and our need. And he gave up all of the riches of heaven to take on our poverty that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. That one foot washing displays the gospel. Well, what about Mary? You see, Mary has done the same thing. It's an amazing thing. The gospel will go forth into all the world. At that time, uh, from India to Egypt, all the way down to Africa and Asia, the gospel will expand. When the alabaster vessel of Christ's body is broken, there will be the fragrance of the gospel that will go into all the earth, north, south, east, and west, and it will draw all people to see it. It's enacting the gospel. It shows the universal love of the gospel to the ends of the earth, but there is more in that. The great gospel, how the connection with what Mary did to the gospel was taught to me by Mike Bickle, and I love what he has to say. He says, the, in the Greek, the disciples charged Mary with waste. Why this waste? Why did you waste all of this precious oil? And the Greek word is apolumi. And I have to say that because that word is used in another verse that you're familiar with in the New Testament, but it's translated differently. It's translated perish. Something that is perished is wasted, isn't it? But that's the same word in the Greek. And where is that verse found? Why, it's the great gospel verse. All of you know it, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish. There it is. Apolumi might not be wasted. Jesus wasted his own life in order to redeem us from wasting ours. That's the love of the gospel. He wasted himself that we might not be wasted. At Jesus' own foot washing, when he washed the, feet of the, washed the feet of the disciples, he did that same gesture of extravagant love for them. So Mary has expressed the heart of God. Isn't that interesting? Her extravagance speaks of the love of the Father who gave his Son. What a precious gift was that? Think of the alabaster vessel of his body. His body was prepared for a sacrifice, Hebrews tells us, to be broken, you see, for us. My goodness. Extravagance speaks of the love of the Father who gave us the Son. The act is so fragrant that everyone is drawn to it, as if by the Spirit, when the body of Jesus is broken. What is it that goes out from there? The, Paul talks about the fragrance of the gospel, but it is light and life and liberty and love that go into every corner of all the earth. 
That's what happens when the body of Jesus is broken. What does this mean then? Mary's act of devotion. How does that speak to us, to you, to me? What 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 does Mary teach us? What can we learn from her? I think really what it is is a call to all of us for extravagant love for Jesus. I can't tell you how many people I've known who've dedicated their lives to the ministry. How many times, I hear it all the time, their family says, why are you wasting your life? You have so many talents you could achieve on so many levels. Why are you wasting your life? It's because you have the heart of Mary. You know her, and you see on your knees at the feet of Jesus what true value is, what's really, truly worthy. I mentioned that I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting her after I see the Blessed Savior. I want to see Mary. And so in that spirit, I imagine, what would Mary tell us if she were here today? After seeing the glory of the Savior and resurrected beauty. If she were here today, what would, what would we ask of her? What would be the questions you would have? She wasn't an apostle. She never, ever worked a miracle. She's unknown to us apart from church history, or in church history, apart from this passage in scripture. And this is what God has given us to remember her by. But Mary listened with her heart and understood Jesus, and I've come to see that the heart is the way to true understanding of the Savior. I've had many, I've been blessed to have many, many great teachers, world-famous teachers in this continent and in Europe some of the very best. And I've learned much from many. I've learned many facts that are useful and helpful. But I found that of that number, there are some, several, some few, that taught me more about the Savior. They had the facts, but they showed me his heart. That's what makes a teacher. They showed me his heart, and I would say Mary understood that. She knew that it was more important to know the heart of Jesus than just facts about him. So what would we ask her if Mary were here? I think we could say, Mary, why did you do this? You had to know that such extravagance would be criticized. Think about that. 60,000 poured out. Why did you do it? I think Mary would tell us something like this. Jesus told us that he was going to die for us. He was going to give everything for me. How could I give less to him? But Mary, isn't prudence a Christian virtue? Couldn't you have poured out some of the oil and not broken the vessel to pour out the whole? What would Mary say to that? Well, but Jesus was completely broken for me. He did not hold back anything. He did not give himself by measure or by tithes, 
but holy he was poured out for me. But Mary, isn't thrift a Christian virtue? What will you have saved up? Didn't you know that your prospects to marry might be marred by this to waste your dowry? What if you have no one in old age to cherish you? What would Mary say? I think she'd say this, that doesn't matter. You see, I will always have him. Jesus has promised never to leave me or forsake me. He has loved me with an everlasting love. He once told me that the portion I had chosen would never be taken away from me. Never. I will always have him, and he will always cherish me. But Mary, couldn't this money have been better spent? Didn't the disciples have some insight? Couldn't this great price have been shared with many to lessen the desperate suffering of so many poor? What would Mary have said to that? Oh, but she would say, it was given to the poor. Don't you see what the disciples couldn't see that night? Was there ever any poverty like his poverty? Jesus had given up all the riches of heaven to take onto himself my poverty and my sin. He did all this that I, through his poverty, might be made rich in heavenly mercy. That night, he was shortly to take onto himself the sins of the world. Truly, that night, Jesus, you see, was the poorest of all, and she had given everything she had to the poor after all. Today, as Jesus said, we remember sweet Mary of Bethany, as Jesus said would be done when the gospel is preached, and we learn her very heart when we, like Jesus himself, are willing to waste ourselves to pour out our very lives in extravagant love for the Savior, just as she did on that night so long ago. Gracious Father, we thank you for the love of the sweet girl. We thank you that our Lord was anointed with love, that he had that remembrance, that fragrance upon him when he suffered, when he sweat in the garden, when the crown of thorns bled over his face, when he was covered in spittle, perhaps there was the wisp of that memory that still was upon him, that memory of Mary, as a token of the love of all of us who know what he did and love him for it. Gracious Father, we ask that your mercies would be with us. If anyone is here and does not know this love, that they might cry out to Jesus who welcomes all who come, promising he will never cast any away, who welcomes us into his family of faith and promises us the gift of heaven in exchange for our sin. He gives us his salvation. I thank you, Father, for this church dedicated to that very proposition and pray that this church would be raised up 
in Broward County and in Florida and throughout the world that the reach of this church would carry forth the fragrance of the gospel of God who loved us and gave himself for us on the cross. We thank you for our precious Savior. Amen.